What up? What up? What up, everyone? Welcome to episode 60 of Combo's Court, and I am Combo. That's right, man. The big 6-0, 60 episodes of Combo's Court. Big shouts to everyone who's been rocking with Combo, man. Combo Nation, the support has been nothing short of amazing, man. Today's show, Ben Taylor, author of Thinking Basketball, joins in. Ben is a cognitive scientist whose work on sports analytics has been used in the Wall Street Journal, ESPN.com, and BasketballReference.com. Ben has a YouTube channel and podcast, both named Thinking Basketball, man. I urge you to go subscribe to those. It's really great stuff. You won't be disappointed, man. We had an epic basketball conversation on this episode of Combos Court. We discussed analytics, LeBron James, what moving the three-line back would mean for the league. And to my surprise, man, Ben even did some research on Combos Game. Plus so much more. Follow Ben on Twitter at LG55. That's E-L-G-E-E-5-5. You know you can follow me on Instagram at 1-2-Combo. That's O-N-E. T-W-O-C-O-M-B-O. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe to Thinking Basketball and Combos Court right on your Apple Podcast app. Big shouts to the Spotify community. We see you. Intro music by Luca Beats. Let's get into it. Ben Taylor, Thinking Basketball, welcome to Combos Court. Thanks, Thanks for having me. So let's start with you, man. For those who aren't familiar with your work, you know, the, the YouTube channel, the podcast, the book, tell us. The way you analyze the game, how do you feel like it's a little bit different from everybody else? Ooh, so that's that's a good place to start. Uh, I think at this point in time, the easiest way to sum that up is there's a there's a cultural background of watching the game that is very much like eye test. You know, um, is this guy on a winning team? What are his basic stats? And kind of what are his skills? What do I see when I watch him play? Right, and then. And then we've had this movement in the last few years that's really become more prominent of quote-unquote analytics. And my perspective and the thing I'm always trying to drive forward is I see those things just sitting together. I, I don't know how to separate those right. things. So that, that's always been a big thing for me is this idea of when you're watching the game, the data, the quote-unquote analytics, we're just trying to measure the stuff we see on the court. And so it's not about all analytics or analytics says this is not about all eye test and it's not even about competing those things. It's, it's really about how they fit together. And I think that's the, that's the perspective I always try to take. Right. So speaking of analytics, you know, the obvious is um, in the league, they're shooting a lot more threes and a lot more layups and, and the mid range has somewhat been eliminated, but has there anything else that analytics drastically changed about the current NBA? Well, I mean, you could go back, uh, I guess it's been about a decade now since that, Famous. Do you remember this this Michael Lewis piece on Shane Battier and how he used data in scouting? Did you ever read that? Yeah, I mean, I've not that exactly, but I heard Battier would uh, take his studying right. to a different level. Right, right, right. And I think that that kind of helped um, 
you know, break the dam gates open a little bit, so to speak, on this idea of, you know, analytics can be used at a tactical, like an in-game level. I'm curious in your playing days, you know, what, what was the richest kind of scouting report you ever got on an opponent in terms of like, all right, tendencies, percentages, um, you know, when we come into this game, we're going to take a strategy of always keep him going to his left or uh, always keep him uh, on the left side of the court or whatever it is. Did you ever encounter that in your playing days? Not, not too much. You know, they would talk about who the key players um, we have to stop them, but it didn't get too much into detail. We used to break film down, but nothing like how it is today with analytics. I'm sure. Yeah. 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 So I think that was a, from what I can tell on the outside, and then talking to some players on the inside, it does seem like there was a, you know, 20 years ago, they just, they just didn't have this. And so, right. and so to connect like a historical parallel that is even more obvious, 50 years ago, they didn't even have film breakdown. And when it was introduced, Bill Sharman, the old Celtics player and Laker coach on the 72 Laker championship team, like he was one of the guys who's like, okay, we're going to have film session. You know, we're going to have, right. you're going to come in in the morning and then we're going to do stuff later. And this was seen as crazy back then. This was like an extremely radical idea. So right. probably the players were like, oh, man. Exactly. <laughs> yes. That's, many of the players were like, I, why are we doing this? I yeah. don't want to watch this. I don't want to do extra work. Right. And I don't want to watch myself get exposed on tape. Okay. So, man, you recently had a video, um, which I watched. I probably watched it twice, actually. Public perception is that LeBron's, LeBron as a defender, his, his value has drastically declined. Your research tells us something different. Uh, can you speak to that? Well, I think it has declined, you know. Right. But, I don't know about drastically, though, right? Um, I mean, some of it depends on where you view him uh, a few years ago at his best. Like, right. for, for me, I thought when he was at his best, when he was at his peak of his powers defensively, he's really one of the better perimeter defenders ever. He's super versatile. He's right. long. He can protect the rim. You really can't – like – he would just switch on to bigs and in offense, they would never go after him or things like that. He was really good. Definitely. So he's coming from a high place. And I think he's come down off that, especially in the last few years, his, his, his feet are so much slower than they used to be. He never had like lightning quick footwork anyway, but as the, as, as the kind of uh, lateral athleticism has waned a little bit, uh, I think that's been a big glaring weakness. His motor, I mean, he's older. His motor isn't what it used to be. And so he definitely has declined. But I think what's happened now is people cherry pick or they focus on these bad, bad possessions or sort of uh, situations that don't look good. One play out of a game or one play out of five games. And they, they magnify it and they think, wait a second. Yeah. This guy's like the worst defender in the league. And I think what I'm saying and what I really, really had hammered into my face going back over film this year was like, actually, he's not even close to that. He's still a decent defender at times and his overall value defensively. Uh, I think it's still slightly positive, but he's far from being, you know, the worst defender in the league or something like that. Right. To your point, I feel like they did that with uh, James Harden, man, with those YouTube compilation videos. I mean, he's not the greatest defender, but it really is not that bad all the time back then. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm excited to do I, – I have one plan for Harden. I've uh, been trying to keep an eye on his defense throughout the year. But it, it's, a, it's a good connection to make in the sense that Harden, Harden has major weaknesses on defense. But you can't just focus on those weaknesses. So right. 
to go back to your first question, I think another thing that I do that maybe some people aren't always used to receiving when they, when they ingest my content is like, I don't take extreme positive or extreme negative stances. Instead, right. instead, that is true. That right, is true. Right. Every player has positives and negatives, and I'm trying to vet out what those are. And then what's so interesting in the, the natural follow up conversation to that is okay, well, how valuable is, is that? Or okay, how much does that hurt the team? To stick with LeBron real quick, you know, you mentioned on your podcast, which was really interesting, and I never really thought about it. LeBron improved a lot as a shooter, um, but he didn't drastically change his form. You think Ben Simmons could take a page out of, out of LeBron's book with that? Ooh, I I recently I don't know if you heard it. I recently had a like a long rambling uh, neurological assessment of why it's hard for Ben Simmons to change his shooting form. So the the abridged answer is he he could he could radically change his shooting form, and that might be the best bet for him. But the challenge is the guy's been shooting a basketball for years, right? We forget this. Like right. he's, he's been trying to improve his shooting for years. And every one of us, when we shoot, has feedback from our brain as we go through our shot, release the ball and see where it ends up. And all you're trying to do over and over again is just tweak your mechanics so you can get that thing in the hoop over and over and over again. And the, the short answer is some of us are way better than others at doing that. And it seems hard to just snap your fingers and manufacture something different where all of a sudden Ben Simmons now, can you shoot right-handed? What do you think about that? Um, they did that with Tristan Thompson. I don't know if it worked out too well. Right. Right. I mean, Tristan Thompson, the, the ask is not for him to make three pointers. Right. That's true. That's yeah. true. So, that's true. so the other thing is the, the, the longer the shot, the farther you are from the basket, the more physics works against you because a, a slight error gets magnified the farther you're, farther you are from the hoop. So I've had, I've had a shooting coach on here. Uh, his name is Mike Dunn, and his biggest quote is "Shooters are made, not born." Do you, do you feel like that that's not really the case? Well, I think it's both. I think it's right. both. Um, I, I I there's a lot of merit in the quote in the sense that you know you can practice and groove something. That's another right. thing that happens uh, from a cognitive perspective. You groove that into your brain over and over again. And if you groove a funky habit, it's actually much harder to undo it than if you had never That's done true. it at all. That's true. Uh, you know, so it's like. Yeah, to that point, actually, Mike says that, like, he attributes some of his, um, his ability as a shooter as starting late. So, you know, like, yeah. you know, when you're eight, you got to heave the ball. He was already a little bit older. He was strong enough to consistently keep a good form. Yeah, that's, and that's a very real thing we see in like motor pattern research when they look at like golf swings or tennis stroke. I, I can't even remember off the top of my head what other research has been done in this field, but there is a lot that's looked at sort of the, the neurological and biological process of your swing, your stroke, your shot, just, just some kind of physical form. And if you can not have those tainted habits, you know, I kind of feel this way about Pascal Siakam. Like, I don't think Pascal Siakam is going to be a great shooter, but I think the fact that he wasn't, you know, hindered with a bunch of bad basketball habits allows him to quickly learn the things he does, the way he plays. Like, look at these little one-legged, like, off-balance right. shots. It, that's, to me, that's just all learned, learned new behavior that doesn't have sort of, like, old habits overshadowing. Yeah, maybe that helped Akeem, too. That's another, another great example. Yeah. Tim Duncan, the swimmer. 
<laughs> for sure. Speaking of Tim right? Duncan, yeah, for sure. Speaking <laughs> of Tim Duncan, speaking of shooting, um, I'd like to hear your thoughts on Manu's progression as a shooter over his career. Well, you know, it's interesting. You you uh, shot me that message the other day about Manu's progression, and yeah. I, I briefly mentioned it, and then it got me thinking. Like, okay, the Spurs have a coach who. Uh, is known for working with shooting Chip Chip Anglin. You know him? Yeah, definitely. Actually, Mike, to, right. keep, to keep getting back to Mike, he mentioned that yeah. <laughs> he, this guy actually uh, worked with Kawhi when he first, uh, when yeah. Kawhi first got in. Yeah, and look at Kawhi right. now. Yeah. Right. So that kind of – that opened a little bit of a, a rabbit hole for me because it got me thinking, okay, when did Chip get to the Spurs? It was like the 2005-2006 season, I believe. Right. Now, when did Manu – who came into the league, for those who don't remember, man who came into the league when he was like, what, 25 or something? Yeah, he played. He was he, in Europe for a while, for a little bit. Right, right, right. right. He, he was older. Right. And so what makes his shooting progression so fascinating is he was always a solid shooter in Europe and in the internationals, and he came to the Spurs, and he was a shot, solid shooter there. But all of a sudden, in like right after Chip gets there, in like 2006, 2007, he just levels up his shooting. It's not anything incredible. But he, it's, it's something to note when you go from like a 78, 80% free throw shooter to an 87% free throw shooter. When you go from a 35% three-point shooter to having a bunch of seasons over 40%. Right. And, and, and that, that kind of coincided with Chip getting there. So I don't know if you want to bring it back to Mike and give him another plug now. But it's like, <laughs> <laughs> it's like I, I was I, – so I started thinking like, okay – there's got to be at least a little something there without knowing the behind the scenes story. And then you fast forward and you look at some of the other guys, Kawhi Leonard, of course, is the other sort of classic case, but even Tony Parker, I mean, when Tony Parker, he was there young and players naturally improve from their early twenties or late teens into their late twenties and early thirties. But again, chip gets there and it coincides with Parker's big bump in free throw percentage could be a coincidence and then Kawhi Leonard. And the thing about Kawhi that I think is so interesting, uh, you can clearly see how they changed their shot. Like if you go back and watch him when he was in college, right. he did not have the same mechanics at all on his shot. Yeah. It's not, it's not the smoothest release now, actually. It, it's not. It's yeah. interesting. But when one thing Zach Lowe was talking about this week is, is how much backspin he gets on his shot. Right. Like the, right. R, the RPMs on that thing are, are intense. <laughs> <laughs> right. For sure. Uh, he's knocking down the three. Speaking of threes, man, um, I've been reading Sprawlball. Are, are you familiar? Yeah, I don't have a copy yet. I'm, I'm jealous that you are already digging into it. Yeah, it's great. And he talks about one crazy idea. We won't get too into that about that the home court team could pick the three-point line. <laughs> the, almost like in baseball, you have a, a yeah, different... Yeah, that, yeah, that's a little crazy. But, you know, his first idea was um, bringing it back to 25 feet. If this were to happen, how do you feel this would affect the NBA. And do you like this idea? Well, you would correct me if I'm wrong. If you bring it back to 25 feet, do you, do you still get any taper in the corner or would you not have a corner three? Anymore? Right. It's, it's funny. Cause I looked at the picture and he, he writes like on the side, I, from what I remember, um, I don't have the book right here with me, but hardly any space in the corner he writes or something like that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, I think the strategic element that's so interesting is if you, so whether it's 25 feet or you need to go slightly more or whatever, right. is taking away the corner three. Right. So you would still have the idea of a three-point shot, but it would be above the break. And from an, so, so if, we, if we can kind of go a little hard into the math for a second. Go ahead. 
basically what happened was they, they introduced the three-point shot. Three-point shot has a long history. It goes back to even before the ABA, you know, uh, experimental uh, leagues below the NBA. And so they finally get into the NBA. And what no one realized at any point then was that having a shot that's worth one and a half times the regular shot is a really big deal. Right. It would be like if there's a kind of touchdown in football that was worth 11 points, you know? Right. So, so what's happened is you got a 45% mid-ranger or a 40% long two or something, and it gets only slightly worse when you go back to three, all of a sudden the value of three, this is what the analytics movement has kind of unearthed with Maury Ball and the Rockets and why three-point shooting has been exploding and why it will even continue to grow a little bit more because right. the value of that shot for the percentage of the shot is still better than so many of these mid-range twos. So, okay. So what happens now if we make the value of the shot, the percentage of the shot lower? Well, theoretically, if you move it back enough and you take away the corner three and you're left with, let's say, above the break threes that good shooters only hit at 34 35%, now you start to re-incentivize people to take mid-range jumpers. And that's where I think the whole thing gets interesting. If you, if you remove that corner three, do you then go back to a game where the geometry of the court is unlocked more? It's like, okay, yeah, the fact that you're going to give me this open 16-footer, that's going to actually be you know, positive offense again or, or whatever it would be. Yeah, it'll definitely change the spacing for sure if they, if they, if they took away the corner three. I mean, as a, as a player... What are your thoughts on that? I don't, it's I don't, such an I don't, interesting thought experiment. I, I think it'll take away, like, if there's no corner three, it'll take away the lane for drivers. You know what I mean? I don't like right because you're not going to have as much uh, emphasis on setting up in the corner as a weapon. It will be completely, completely neutered. Right? Yeah. You know, we like to see those finishes in the paint. I mean, people complain about sometimes about the high offense, but really, that's what puts the fans in the seats. You know, that that wide open space. Uh, you know what I mean? I think. I think it helps the league. Well, it's been beautiful. I, I yeah, mean, I think, for sure. I, I think the, the question is, can they go too far on things like uh, soft fouls and, yeah. and things of this nature? But the spacing uh, and the sort of uh, the, the freedom of movement, if you will, has really helped coincide with the spacing, which has created a kind of a, a beautiful game feel to basketball recently. Definitely. So, and it seems like in the playoffs, they're not calling as many fouls as we see with uh, James Harden complaining. well again those are see i i don't know about you for me i'm more like figure out figure out the way you want to do it on the technicality of those plays i'm more interested in the everyday a guy's going through the lane a guy's rubbing off a screen are you going to allow contact versus like physical advantage yeah i mean steph curry steph curry is pretty much impossible to guard if you don't allow any contact you know what i mean so so I think, and maybe you can speak to this more as a player at a higher level than I ever reached, but contact in basketball is just like perfectly normal. It's when you push, shove, hold, right. elbow. Yeah. It's the actual advantage that I think we want to see fouls called on. And so, yeah, in the playoffs, I would love it if they just officiated every game. Like I thought the Boston-Milwaukee game had a better flow where it's like, okay, you guys are, your bodies are touching each other. I don't need to call a foul. Or... I'm an offensive player. I barrel into the lane and I put my shoulder into you and maybe I hit you a little yeah. bit, but maybe I, right. You don't need to, call, if anything, I want to see that called an offensive foul, but like, let, let those plays flow. And then the other stuff, I, I don't know, man, 
land pe- where people land i can't figure it out yeah i don't know what's going on i mean look there's two, <laughs> there's two extremes you got like the bad boys pistons basketball and you got now if i had to pick one i'd pick now but um i don't know i guess we could we could let them bump a little bit more than we than we see you know right right i think we're in a better place now i think we're in a much better place now it's about cleaning it up or kind of finding finding the right sweet spot and to your point when you get in the playoffs you, you as a fan you don't necessarily want to see 75 free throws in a playoff game. Right. Giannis is a great player. I was never as high on him as everybody else was. Obviously, I think he's great. Um, the reason I say that is because people were saying he's the best player in the league, and I always thought you would have to prove it in the playoffs. Do you think with his skill set and his athleticism that he'll figure out what the Celtics, what happened in the first game? Well, boy, it's interesting. He, um, I thought the Celtics defended him very well when I looked at the film from the previous games, as I talked about in my most recent podcast. Right. And then, and then you look at the numbers, and he's got 30 points, 15 rebounds, five assists. So I think with a guy like that, when you're that good, and I think it's going to be unfair if, if Milwaukee flames out and Giannis doesn't have a good counter, I think he'll get some unfair heat. Because when you're that good, you're saying, all right, I'm taking you from like a megastar level player, and I'm bringing you all the way down because one team has focused their entire game plan on you, Right. They've found they've found a weakness by using fantastic defenders, smart coaches, and you didn't have the teammates or the scheme to alleviate the pressure on that on that uh, strategic point that they took away from you. Everyone, every player kind of has to go through this. I, I think Dirk went through this to a certain degree, and I've talked about it in in profiles I've written on Dirk before. When he was younger, he was still great, but there were little things you could do physically right. to get in his get in his space or push him off his spots or stuff like that. When he added some lower body strength, you couldn't take that away anymore. Now, does that mean that 2011 Dirk was like way better than 2006 Dirk? I, not to me, right. right? It's just it's just it gets magnified in the playoff series because you know that's what we focus on. Everything is on the line, and to the point I started with, he's still he'll have a bad series, man, and still finish with like you know 26 a game. I think the assists are the bigger number because they take away his ability to create offense. And that is almost more impressive or more, more important to the team than just his raw scoring. Great stuff, man. Um, where can we find you on uh, social media or anywhere else? Oh, uh, on Twitter, where I'm a little bit more active, it's a little easier to respond. It's LG35, E-L-G-E-E-3-5. Uh, and then everywhere else is Thinking Basketball, Thinking Basketball YouTube, uh, Thinking Basketball Podcast. My podcast is available on Spotify now, along with basically every, every other major podcast network. Um, so yeah, that, that's, that's where you can find me and that's what I'll be doing. I'll be doing podcasts, nylon calculus. I still write some stuff over there occasionally. It's a great sort of analytics, uh, bent site. If you're not familiar with it and you're into that sort of stuff and that's all I got. (laughs) (laughs) Great, man. You know, I've definitely been paying attention to the YouTube channel and the podcast and I'm going to get around to the book too. Um, I really appreciate Oh, oh, there's there's one more. There's one more. I always forget the most important one. Go ahead. Uh, pa- Patreon.com slash thinking basketball. That's my patronage uh, page. But I have a lot of content that I put up there for patrons. Uh, you can sign up for two bucks, four bucks, support me, help me make content. And you get access to like all my stats that I've created over the years, historical data on players going back to the shot clock. Uh, like I said, I have like posts or things that I'll share about the videos or the podcast that don't make it into the main content. So if that's something you're interested uh, in, you can head over there as well. Very dope. It's actually something I'm thinking about starting soon. Yeah, definitely. Definitely recommend it. And for, for people listening, 
um, who are who are your regulars. It's just a great way to support us in making. It seems like a small thing, but it goes a long way. It's a really big psychological boost. So right. yeah, if you have a couple bucks and you're interested in supporting Andrew. Uh, I definitely recommend starting it. Appreciate that, man. That means a lot. You're always welcome back on the show if you ever want to talk basketball or anything else. Thanks, Ben. Awesome. Well, well, ne- next time it's just going to be a full scouting report about your game. Uh oh. Um, uh oh. You know. <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know who you compare yourself to, but I was. I found a few clips. I was. I was getting some Joe Ingles flashbacks. <laughs> I say that sometimes. That's really. Yeah. Funny. That's really. Yeah. Funny. I definitely <laughs> see that. The only thing is, he has four inches on me. <laughs> I know. I know. Don't tell anyone that. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Wow. You know, it's funny because th- I've heard that. I've heard Mullen a little bit, but yeah, that's a good one. I like Joe Ingles. Yeah. I think Ingles, I, you think Ingles, you, you've got some games up, um, I think from somewhere in Europe. Right. Uh, right. And, and there's, you, you can run the pick and roll. You can do it on ball. You can pass a little bit, but a little off ball shooting, a little finishing. It, it felt very Joe Ingles-esque. <laughs> that's hilarious. Appreciate you, Ben. You're always welcome back. All right, Andrew. Thanks so much for having me. Have a great day. Anytime. Talk to you soon. There it is. Episode 61. Hope you enjoyed the show. Big shouts to Ben for joining in. We appreciate you. It would mean the world to me if you left a five-star rating and a friendly comment right on your Apple Podcast app. Be on the lookout for episode 61. Combo out.